Now, friends, we've come to a very difficult section here in the fourth chapter of 1 John for many reasons. One of the reasons is that we're dealing with the spirit world here of which none of us know too much about. And the second thing is we're in the devil's territory. And I've always found that when I preach on the devil, when I was a pastor, when I talked on him, he always managed to cause some interruption in the service. Generally, he'd pinch some baby, and we'd have trouble in that area. Or someone would cause a disturbance in the service. It's amazing how he works. And there are other reasons, but we're coming to a very important section And you can go off the deep end on this section and become rather fanatical. And again, I think there's been too much occupation today in this particular area on the part of Christians. But we do need to know about it, and we intend to spend as much time as we think is important in this area. Now, that's important to know. We're given a warning here against false prophets, and they are generally involved in prophecy. That's the thing that marks them. Now, let's look at this, because this idea of lovey-dovey today that the liberal talks about, it slops over on every side. That's not what the Word of God teaches. Paul, you remember, prayed for the Philippians. He says, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. And that's Philippians 1.9. Now, Paul prayed that their love might abound in knowledge and judgment. Don't be taken in by everyone that comes along and says he's a Christian, because a lot of them are not. I think I'll have time to tell this little story, which I told some time ago. When I first became pastor in downtown Los Angeles, I discovered this later, that all of these bums, and that's the best word I know for them, They take advantage of you. And so one Sunday morning after the service, those that had come forward were being dealt with, and one of them said he wanted me to talk with him. Well, I was quite flattered when the personal worker came and said, this man wants you to talk with him. So I went over and I gave him a plan of salvation, and he seemed so interested. In fact, I'd read a verse and he'd take the Bible and he'd want to read it. He knew what he should do. And so... He said he would accept Christ. We got down on our knees, and he shed tears, and we got up. And then I made the mistake of asking him how he was getting along. I shouldn't have asked that, but he told me. He said, well, I hate to say this, but he says, my suitcase is down yonder in a hotel. It was one of the cheap hotels in the downtown area. And he said, they won't let me have my suitcase because I can't pay my bill. And he said, I'm greatly embarrassed by it. And I said, how much is it? And he said, seven dollars. Well, what are you going to do with a man that apparently has just accepted the Lord? And he's lost his suitcase. Well, I gave him seven dollars. And I went out and got in the car. My wife was waiting for me. And I became very expansive. I told her how I had done this, you know, and how wonderful it was. Well, time went by. In about six weeks, I saw his picture in the paper. He'd been arrested. And he made the statement, among other things, he said he lived in Los Angeles for six months. And he said, I've lived off of the preachers. He says, they are the biggest saps they are. 
in the world. Well, I happen to be one of them. <laughs> and I called up a good friend of mine then, Dr. Bob Schuler, who was down at the Trinity Methodist Church. And I said, did he come see you? He said, yes. And I said, well, did he get to you? And he said, no. He said, did he get to you? And I said, yes, he got to me. He says, well, Vernon, I've been in downtown Los Angeles longer than you have. And I've had a little more experience. He says, don't let them take you in. Remember, the Bible says to try the spirits, to see whether they are of God or not. And he said, a lot of these are phonies. Well, he was a phony, but he took me for $7. And after that, I made the statement, don't ever come down and ask me for $7 to get your suitcase out of a cheap hotel, because I'm not about to give it to you. I learned my lesson. Now, Paul prayed that they might grow in their love, but in judgment and in knowledge. Use it wisely. You be very careful. Now, let me read chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, he's talking now to believers, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits, or prove the spirits. I like the word prove much better. But prove the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, we're dealing here with the spirit world, and the Bible has a great deal to say about it. For instance, we have in Psalm 104, at verse 4, "...who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers of flaming fire." And that's quoted in Hebrews, the first chapter, verse 7. Actually, a great many people feel that because down a little farther in Hebrews, and we've already dealt with this, but let me remind you of it, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? Now, I've never seen an angel, and I've never had a visit by one of them. I don't personally feel that they today have a ministry to the church. My feeling is that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and you just can't improve on that arrangement. And I'd much rather have the uncreated Holy Spirit than a created angel to follow me around or to minister. I think that today that we need to put the emphasis on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. But not only are there good angels, that is, those that serve God, but there are today fallen angels, and they are spirits. They are called that in Scripture. The Gospels talk a great deal that in Christ's day there were unclean spirits. That is what is known as demonism. We call them demons because the Scripture uses that term. Now, we are warned and told that the reason we're to put on the whole armor of God and that we are in today a gigantic battle that is beyond the flesh. It's a spiritual battle. And Paul says in Ephesians 6:12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, I've gone into detail in that when we were there 
in Ephesians and also in the book of Daniel more recently. So that I'm not going back over that ground today, that we believe that the devil has the thing pretty well organized on his side. In his army of demons, he has at the top the generals and the lieutenant colonels, and then on down to the sergeants and the corporals and the just plain ordinary infantryman, just a regular soldier. And I think God has his organized very much the same way. And we saw an example of that in the book of Daniel. Now, we are told here that we're to believe not every spirit. That is, these unclean spirits. We're to test the spirits. Now, a few years ago, that sounded rather spooky. The supernatural was ridiculed, especially in college circles and among the intelligentsia. But we have now moved into an area today where Satan has become quite a reality, and there's Satan worship. And it's confined to a great extent to colleges, either the campus or around the campus. We have one or two satanic churches here in Los Angeles, and we may even have more. And a few years ago, you know, it was way out in left field. is something that's in existence today. And down in Florida, they had a young boy that was killed, a 17-year-old boy, murdered. And they found out that it was done to appease Satan because the satanic priestess down there, just a young woman of 22, said that this boy should be killed. I have all types of clippings here before me, and these are things that are taking place today. Now, we've had quite a few things that have happened actually in our day that are really, and I mean really spooky. We have, for instance, this book, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. That's the name of the book. The author is named Richard Bach, and he has said that a voice dictated it to him and that it's not his own style of writing, actually. And very candidly, it's something today that I understand that many churches have recommended and several good men have been taken in by it. Well, it's the story about a theological concept of a young seagull, which has human attributes. He soared off toward unlimited perfection and found that each of us is just an idea of the great gull, and that birth and sin and sickness and death are not realities, but just illusions. And what the biblical writers call sins really are virtues. And freedom is freedom to do what one pleases. Well, that's not new, but this, of course, is actually out of the very pit of hell itself, because this is satanic. Now, we're seeing a manifestation of demonism today, and it's all around us. When I was in college, why, it was frowned upon, uh, looked down upon. You were just a plebeian. It didn't make any difference what IQ you had or what grades you made in school. But if you just happened to believe in the supernatural, you were radically wrong. And they didn't hesitate to tell you so. Well, let me say that today that's all changed. And 
It's weird today, and many young people have gone off the deep end into this. They've never had any Bible training at all. Now, he's talking here to God's children. He's told us about how we're to love each other, how believers are to love each other and to help each other. But we must be careful. As we said last time, you remember that Paul prayed for the Philippians, and he loved them a great deal. He says, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. It's wonderful to love, but may I say to you, you and I are in a mean, big, wicked world. And this world that we live in today is going to take us in. It'll deceive us. We need to be careful. And he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirit. And when I hear today, somebody tells me about some person that seems to have supernatural power, maybe to heal, maybe to impart a gift. I don't get excited. And somebody says, why don't you go hear so-and-so? Well, I don't want to waste my time. I'm told today to test, to prove the spirits. And may I say to you, just because a thing looks like it's supernatural, and there's a lot of hocus-pocus going on today, I can assure you that there's nothing supernatural in it at all. It's just a camouflage Christianity. We're to test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, the false prophets that John means here, teachers. And Paul used it that way. For instance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.3, he that prophesieth speaketh unto man to edification and exhortation and comfort. You see, prophecy here means to teach, to exhort, to instruct, and to do that sort of thing. Now, there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. And I want to tell you that there are many that are abroad today that we need to be aware of. I think right now that prophecy is becoming such an interesting subject, and I think rightly so. But again, the thing that has been said, Sir Robert Anderson made the statement, he says, beware of the wild utterances of prophecy mongers. Well, there are a lot of those abroad today that are saying more than the Scripture says, so that we need to be very careful today. Just because a man comes along saying, Lord, Lord, that doesn't mean we should love him. That may be the man that's more dangerous than a rattlesnake, because he may be teaching false doctrine. That is, he's not really teaching the Word of God, although he may carry a big Bible under his arm. Now, will you notice, verse 2, "...by this know ye the Spirit of God." Now, how are we to distinguish now, here is the way. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Now, this is where it all begins. It began in Bethlehem, you see. He was born in Bethlehem. And it began there. It's the incarnation is where we begin. Because Calvary and the garden tomb are meaningless unless he's who he claimed to be unless he is the God-man. And so today, the way that you can determine the false one, he'll deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean they don't talk nice about him. They 
talk about what a remarkable youth that he was, and that he was a child that was born into the world, and he was superior. They talk about the fact he was a religious genius, and that he was just intoxicated with God, and he probably had a greater knowledge of God, and he may have had something a little superior to someone else. He was a superstar, you know. They can say a lot of nice things about him, you see. But was he God manifested in the flesh? John says the Word. And who was the Word? Why, he's God. And he created all things. And he became flesh. Where? Yonder Bethlehem at the incarnation. Jesus came in that. One of the early heresies, and John is meeting this head on. Gnosticism said that one branch of it, that Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and left him at Calvary. Well, may I say to you that that's not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God says that that babe in Bethlehem was more than a remarkable baby, and that his death upon the cross was not an ordinary death, and that when he rose from the dead, he rose bodily from the dead. He was delivered for our offenses, raised for our justification. And it was, as Isaiah said, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Now, the child is born. The son is given. You see, he came out of eternity, the Ancient of Days. But the child, his humanity, was conceived in the virgin's womb. And he came forth yonder in Bethlehem. And they came, a few shepherds and wise men came to worship him. He was more than just a precocious child. He was the precious prince of peace, who made peace by the blood of his cross, and someday shall bring peace to this war-weary world that we are living in. And the important thing for us to note here is that this is the mark. This is the way that you tell, by this know ye the Spirit of God. Let's find out what they believe about Jesus Christ. That's important, very important. Now he adds to this, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is the spirit of Antichrist, of which ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Now, he has mentioned, this is the third time that he has mentioned Antichrist. And John is the only writer who mentions Antichrist, and he only mentions it in his epistles. Now we have this before us again, and I'm not going to be able to develop all of the great truth concerning this, but next time I want to talk a little about Antichrist. But we've seen already in 1 John 2.22, who is a liar, but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He's Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Now, we find that again here in this passage of Scripture that he's mentioned it. But I think we had a reference even before 1 John 2.22 and 1 John 2.18. Little children, it's the last time, as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, by which we know that it's the last time. We saw, since we've been in this 
epistle here, it can mean actually two different things. Anti can be either against, or it can be instead of. That is, an imitation. And we have presented that in Scripture. The Lord Jesus said, "...many shall come in my name." That is, imitating Antichrist in that sense, pretending to be. And the other is against Christ. Now, you have two beasts in the 13th chapter of Revelation. That first beast is the great political ruler that's coming, Antichrist to rule the world, a world dictator. Then you have a religious ruler that is coming, and he is called the false prophet there, and he causes the world to worship the first beast. And he comes like a lamb, but underneath he's a wolf, so that he imitates Christ. Now, I believe there will be two men, and it'll take two men to fulfill all that's said about Antichrist. You will have a great political ruler at the end time, and you'll have a great religious ruler at the end time. Now, the civilization that we're in is all building up to the coming of Antichrist. That is, there is coming a great religious ruler. All the religions of the world to be put together and the movements in that direction today. And you have the same kind of movement, actually, politically, because there's a moving today toward one ruler for this world. It would bring peace, and it will bring it temporarily into the world. And it's going to be the most frightful time that the world has ever seen. We talked about that ruler when we were in the book of Daniel. Now, that's the picture that's given to us here concerning Antichrist. And already there are many Antichrists, and there are quite a few of them about today. But they are not the Antichrist, you see. They are teachers that are moving the world closer and closer to the day in the world is being prepared for that one finally to appear. Now you have the internal, the subjective evidence. And what is that? Well, here in verse 4, "...ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world." Now, there's no reason for you to be taken in by this satanic teaching or the denial of the deity of Christ. I had a man that came to my door, and he handed me an envelope in which he had a gift for our radio ministry. And then he told me, he says, I used to be an officer in the church, and a high officer, by the way. Then he says, I got saved, and I got my eyes open. And he says... I knew I was in the wrong place because, he said, they were denying the deity of Christ. And this denomination is a denomination that I was brought up in. And he said, I found out that they were denying the deity of Christ. So he said, I got out. Why did he get out? Well, he's indwelt by the Spirit of God. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So that there's no excuse for you to be taken in today by a false teacher or false prophet or false teaching. The thing to do is to go to God about the matter and ask Him that the Holy Spirit lead you and teach you. And if you're in fellowship with Him, the Spirit of God is going to make it clear to you. I had a dear lady right here in Southern California that she told me that 
she began to listen to me, and she was very critical at first. In fact, the matter is, began to ridicule. She was in a cult, and she felt like what I had to say contradicted what she was being taught, and it sure did. But she began to test it by the Word of God. Now, this woman was really a born-again Christian, but she got caught up in a cult. But she got her eyes open. Why? Because the Spirit of God is there to teach. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And you can overcome all this false teaching today because of that. Now, every Christian, and I need to be very definite here, is indwelt by the Spirit of God. This is no ifs, ands, or perhapses, or buts about it. Every child of God. Listen to Paul in Romans 8. He says here in Romans 8, verse 9, "...but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God, or since the Spirit of God dwells in you." He wasn't raising a question about whether the Romans were saved or not. He's actually saying they are, since the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. And that is the very wonderful thing that back in the fifth chapter, he had said is one of the present results of being justified by faith. He says that the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts. Now, we're going to talk about that in just a minute, this love of God. That is, God's love for us is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who is given unto us. The Holy Spirit is given to believers. Now, that's not the only place. Over in 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, verse 19. What, Paul says, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you're not your own? Now, of course, Paul must be talking about some super-duper saints some that have really arrived, spiritually minded, and those that were living on a high plane. No, you know who he's talking about? He's writing to the Corinthians, and he's just called them carnal. He's called them babes in Christ. He's just about called them everything that they should not have been, but yet they were. And the thing is that every child of God is indwelt by the Spirit of God. Now, since that is true, and that's the reason you don't need an angel to appear to you tonight to tell you that you're in the wrong place. The thing is that you need to have the Holy Spirit teach you. And friends, the Holy Spirit teaches through His Word. And you can't just stay away from the Bible and be ignorant of it and ignore it and expect to have the Spirit of God lead you and guide you. And that's the reason that we're trying to get people in the Word today, because we're reading these letters that reveal that the Spirit of God opens people's hearts, and it protects them from this world that we're living in. We're living in a big, bad world, let me tell you. And today, there's a lot that's false that's going on in the world, and we need to be warned concerning it. And we can test it. Now, here's a test. It's just like putting litmus paper down in a solution to tell whether it is an acid or a base. Believe me, this is a test that'll work, these twofold things. The one that's teaching, does he deny the incarnation? 
Well, that's the spirit of Antichrist, friend. You're not going to follow that. That's contrary to Christ, although it may imitate him. Generally, these false teachers are very attractive persons. Many of them have charisma, and they make a fleshly appeal to folk. But they can be tested. The Holy Spirit is there to be our teacher and our guide. Now, John, and I love the way he does it, he just gets right down to where we are, right? Where we live today. And he says here, They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. That is, these false teachers. And certainly they get a following. The occult and the cults are growing lots faster than Christianity is growing. Why? Because they have the advantage of appealing to the flesh, which we do not have. And I think it's tragic today to have Christians using fleshly means to draw even a crowd in. We need to be very careful of the methods that we use. Now, if they're fleshly methods, we need to recognize God can't bless that at all. We need to be very sure that the Word of God is being given out. I don't care whether several thousand people come to your church, friends. That's not the important thing I'm interested in. Not how many that come, but is the Word of God being given out? And is it given out in the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit of God can take it and use it? That's the thing that's important today. And it's not a great deal of pious promotion today about some cause and some sentimental appeal that causes you to give. The question is, is the Word of God going out there? Are they getting results? You wouldn't want to invest money in a company that's got a nice, beautiful building, and they put up a nice front, and the president of it is a very handsome fellow, and he is certainly very personable, and he has charisma. If you're going to invest in that company, you want to know whether it's making money or not. Is it getting results? Is something happening there? That's the thing that's important. And I think God intends us to use a little consecrated common sense when we are dealing in the area of religion. They are of the world, the worldly crowd. Therefore, speak there the world, and the world heareth them. Now, when we were using Cain and Abel as illustrations, that is, John used them, when he meant that Cain was not righteous, he was not God's child, we didn't mean to say, and John didn't mean to say he wasn't religious. Why, he brought an offering. In fact, I have a notion his altar was much more attractive than Abel's offering was. Cain's was beautiful. Why, it had fruit there. It had the fruit of the field. But Abel's was bloody. It was sickening to some people, nauseating to others. But believe me, that's one God accepted, you see, because it recognized the sin of man and the need of a Savior. And Cain did not recognize that at all, because the flesh depends on itself, doesn't depend on God at all. Now, will you notice here that John is making it very clear to us that the important thing is that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. That's important, my friends. And that is the thing that we need to be very clear on. 
whether the teaching is true or not. And he says here in verse 6, We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. By this know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, I've learned in my ministry, and this is the illustration that I use, I always would tell the people, I didn't mind speaking out and saying to them, I use the Bible as a Geiger counter. You know, a Geiger counter tells you whether there's some uranium there in the rocks and in the soil. And so I just run the Geiger counter over a congregation. And the Bible is what I use. It's the Geiger counter. And I want to tell you, God's children will always respond to it. (laughs) That was my confidence. And it's my confidence on this radio that God's people are going to hear. And you know something? I don't expect the other crowd to hear. Now, if they don't want to hear, all they got to do is turn the button on the radio. And we never ask them to give anything. We ask God's people to support God's work. After all, that ark was carried on the shoulders of priests. That ark speaks of Christ. And friends, if we're going to take him to the world, we've got to carry him on our shoulders. That's the thing that we'll have to do. Now, John was sure of who the Lord Jesus was. John could say this, The Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he gives the purpose of his gospel. Many other signs truly did Jesus, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you might have life through his name. John had indubitable, indestructible, inevitable evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be. John knew that. And that is something you and I need to be a little more sure of today. Now, when we come down here to verse 7, we return back to the subject of this section. God is love, and little children are going to love each other. Now, notice what he says in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Now, this is a very wonderful section, by the way. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is of God. Now, Let's be very careful here what we're talking about. Having given a warning against false teachers who are not to be loved, let's be clear on that. Certain false teachers, I don't pray for them. I'm not giving any pious platitude today about, oh, I'll pray for them. I'm not praying for them. They're the children of the devil. I'm not praying for them. I'm praying for God's people and God's children. And I'm praying for the lost sinner that's going to turn to Christ and will turn to Christ if I can just get the word to him. So, having given a warning here against these false teachers and they're not to be loved, he returns now to the theme of this section. Believers are to love one another. And now let's be careful. What are you talking about when you say love? Well, I've dealt with this before. The word for love is not eros. It's not sex that we're talking about. This love he's talking about is agapao love. 
It's not sentimental. It's not sexual. And it's not social love that he's talking about. It's supernatural love. It's what the Holy Spirit can put in our hearts. And only the Spirit of God can make real to us the love of God. And then only the Spirit of God can enable us to extend that love to others. Now, the norm here, as he makes it clear, is the love of God. Verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, he that loveth not knoweth not God. Now, that's another test of whether you're a child of God. Really today. Now, I didn't ask you if you love your papa and your mama. I'm not asking you if you love your wife or your husband or your children or your kissing cousins. I'm not asking you that. But I am asking this. Do you love other believers? And maybe somebody's going to say, well, I can love some of them. Well, that's helpful. You're moving in the right direction. There's some of them are pretty unlovely, let me tell you. And I can say this, we can love them in the sense we can have a concern for them. And I think we can do that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to put our arms around them. I don't think that's essential today. There's too much of that in Christian circles. And it's all right for Hollywood when they meet to greet each other with a kiss. But we're told to greet each other with a holy kiss. And that's a little different kind of a kiss, by the way. And I don't see very much of the holy kissing going on. But the way you can show your love is your concern for others. That is going to result in help. Now, he gives another definition of God here. God is love. Verse 8. We've already had the definition before, God is light. Now we come to this second major division. We haven't just come to it. We've been in it ever since we were way back yonder in chapter 2. But now we're in this section here where we're given the definition, God is love. And that's the norm of love. God is love. And in this was manifested the love of God toward us. Now, he gives an illustration of it as Paul does. You say, how does God love me? Well, you won't find that love in nature. You find a bloody tooth and a sharp claw. And that's what nature reveals today. But you will find the love of God at Calvary. You'll find the love of God manifested how? Verse 9, "...in this was manifested the love of God toward us, that God sent His only Son, His only begotten Son, into the world, that we might live through Him." Now, God has proven His love. And as Paul says, He laid down His life for us. That's the proof of it. And for a righteous man, some might even dare to lay down their life. Well, I don't know whether you could get anybody to lay down your life for you today. I think I'd have a little problem there. But God has proven his love. He gave his son to die for you. And he gave him to die for you, not after you won a Sunday school bar or attending Sunday school, not missing a Sunday, for about five years. God loved us when we were yet sinners, while we were without strength, while we were lost. While we were absolutely unlovely, God loved us. And the explanation is found in him and not found in us. 
because we are not lovely friends. And some of us don't seem to ever get very lovely, by the way. Now, I see I've come to the end of our program again today, and we'll pick right up there next time. So until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now, friends, we return back to this very important section in 1 John, the fourth chapter. Now, we are in this particular area that is called God is love. We have three great definitions of God in this wonderful little book. God is light. And that was in the first chapter down through the second verse of the second chapter. Now, the very heart of this epistle is God is love. And that began with the third verse of the second chapter, and it goes through chapter 4, and then chapter 5, that we'll be coming to shortly, is God is life. And so these are the three great definitions that are given of God, and they constitute the division of this very marvelous book. Now, beginning with chapter 4, we have what some have called a parenthesis. Maybe it's not quite that, but it is certainly a red light that is put up, a caution sign, a stop-look-and-listen sign that this matter of love must be done with judgment and knowledge, and that we are to love believers, but we better be sure that the believers are not false teachers, and that, as he's made it very clear, we are to prove the spirits, and that they are false prophets that are around that are teaching false things. And in John's day, of course, there was the Docetic and Serentian Gnostics, and they denied actually the humanity of Christ, and in so doing, they actually denied the deity of Christ also. And they made him a very strange, weird individual. Now, God's people, for some strange reason, have always been credulous and gullible. And there are many believers that will fall victims, as Dr. A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar years ago put it, the latest fads in spiritualistic humbuggery. Well, there's a lot of that going around in our day. And he spends that time to give us that warning to beware and a false teacher will deny the incarnation of Christ. Don't tell me the virgin birth is not important. Somebody says, can you be a Christian and deny the virgin birth? You cannot. That's impossible. Because the very mark of a false prophet or a false teacher is at that very point. And when you destroy the virgin birth, you destroy his death for sins of the world upon the cross and his bodily resurrection. In other words, you wreck the Christian faith. And that is the reason that the virgin birth has been the place where there's been so much of denial in our day. And that, of course, reveals a false teacher immediately. And then the child of God is given the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is to lead and to guide us. Now, beginning at verse 7, he comes back to talk to his little children again 
about this great subject of love. Now, we went over part of this, but it'll be good for us to have a good healthy review today at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Now, all through here, the word love is the agape love. Agape love is the highest form of love, and it's above sex, and it's above human relationships. That is, you can love your wife or your mother or your father or your children or your kissing cousins, as we said, but that is not really what John's talking about. He's talking about that which is supernatural. It's not sentimental, and it's not sexual, and it's not social. That is, it's not love of the friends that you delight in being with. It has to do with the kind of love that God loves. And this is a verse that I'm afraid that some of us have misused. Now, maybe you haven't. But when I was a student in college, I used this verse in courting a girl at that time. And I gave her verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. But the kind of love I was talking about, friends, wasn't the kind that John was talking about. I can assure you that. And I sure did misinterpret that. And I must confess I didn't have a very lofty purpose at that particular time. So that this can be misused. Beloved, let us love one another. That is, believer. And I want to say this is the acid test. This is the very thing that tests whether you have a real, genuine coin or not. That's the way coins are tested. And here's the way believers are tested. And it's something, by the way, that we need to, I think, emphasize today, that we are to prove the spirits and Therefore, we are to love the brethren. Beloved, let us love one another, that is, believers. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Now, that is approaching it from the human side. When you meet a person who says he's a believer and you find out he loves you and loves the brethren, he's a born-again child of God. I am so thrilled here in this radio ministry, I think people say things in letters to us that they probably would not say to us personally. But we get many letters where people say, Dr. McGee, I love you. Well, I want to tell you I like that because of the fact that they tell me why, that we've been listening to you. A family wrote me and they said, you brought our two children to the Lord. Well, that to me is an evidence that These are real born-again children of God that are writing to us. And then he says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, that's going to occur again in verse 16, that God is love. And twice that is given here. And Dr. Ironside has a very remarkable story here relative to this. And I'm going to pass on to you his story, because I think it reveals in a very wonderful way that only Christianity reveals a God of love. Look at the images of the heathen and the pagan world today. 
And here is Dr. Ironside's story. He said years ago, a lady who prided herself on belonging to the intelligentsia said to me, I have no use for the Bible or for Christian superstition and religious dogma. It's enough for me to know that God is love. Well, I said, do you know it? She says, why, of course I do. She said, we all know that. And that is religion enough for me. I do not need the dogmas of the Bible. And then Dr. Ironside said, how did you find out that God is love? Why, she said, everybody knows that. And then he answered her again. He says, do they know it yonder in India? That poor mother in her distress, throwing her little babe into the holy Ganges to be eaten by filthy and repulsive crocodiles as a sacrifice for her sins? Does she know that God is love? And then this woman came back and said, oh, well, she's ignorant and superstitious. And then he came back with this. He says, those poor, wretched blacks in the jungles of Africa bowing down to gods of wood and stone and in constant fear of their fetishes and the poor heathen in other countries, do they know that God is love? And then she said, perhaps not, but in a civilized land we all know it. But then he asked the question, but how is it that we know it? Who told us so? Where did you find it out? And she said, I don't understand what you mean, for I've always known it. And then he gave her this. Let me tell you this, he said. No one in the world ever knew it until it was revealed from heaven and recorded in the Word of God. It's here and nowhere else. It's not found in all the literature of the ancients. Now, how was this love of God manifested here? How was it revealed here? And then he gives us that. He says, "...in this was manifested the love of God toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him." Now, when he says, "...only begotten Son," and here is another verse where those who like to rob us of the deity of Christ like to turn to When he's called the only begotten son, it means that there is a unique relationship, that he wasn't created. Because God called the angels actually his sons. He says those that trust Christ today are sons of God. But yet he says that the Lord Jesus is the only begotten son. And did you know that God said the same thing to Abraham? that he was to offer his only begotten son, Isaac. Well, at that time, he had Ishmael. Later on, he had some others. But Ishmael was his son, and just as much his son as Isaac was his son. And the fact of the matter is, he probably looked as much like Abraham as Isaac ever did look like Abraham. But Isaac is called the only begotten. Why? Because he is unique, his birth is miraculous birth. He stands in a unique relationship. And therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his position in the deity, is the Son, as God the Father is the Father. But that doesn't mean he's a human father. God is the Spirit, the Lord Jesus said. 
Now, may I say to you, this sets before us the uniqueness of the Son of God, His only begotten Son, into the world that we might live through Him. Now, this is a strange thing, but how are we going to live through Him? We're going to live through Him because He died. His death gives us life. Now, will you, you notice he goes on to say this in verse 10. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we've had that up before. We had that back in chapter 2 at the beginning. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, what you have here is something, I think, quite remarkable. Now, I recognize that there are two different words that are used for propitiation. I should say this. It's the same word, but a different form of it. The greatest, I think, Greek scholar of all of them, Dr. A.T. Robinson at Louisville Baptist Seminary years ago, says that here the word propitiation is a predictive, accusative in apposition with weos, that is, the Son. So that what the word means, actually, mercy seat. And in the Old Testament, it was the word atonement. And that word meant to cover. And it was a picture of that mercy seat that was in the tabernacle. Now, let me make it as simple as we possibly can. Back in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, there was an ark. And on top of that ark, there was just a top for it. And it was highly ornamented. It was made of solid gold, and two cherubims were up on it, and they looked down at the top of the box. And it was a very beautiful thing, for the ark was made of acacia wood inlaid with gold and outside covered with gold. And it was a mercy seat where they met God, that is, the nation, in the person of the high priest. Once a year, and only once a year, he came in and he brought blood and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And that's what made it a mercy seat, because they could only meet God in that way. God loved them, but he just didn't slop over with love and said, you can just come any way. This was the way they were to come to God. And on that great day of atonement, the high priest went in and sprinkled the blood. That meant the nation was accepted for another year. And then they'd have to go through it again. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is called here, as Paul says in the third chapter of Romans, that he is the propitiation for our sins. That means he's the mercy seat for our sins. Jesus is himself the mercy seat because he died down here. He was delivered for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. He's made expiation for our sins so that you and I can come with boldness to his throne now of grace. That throne is a throne of grace because there is mercy there for us. And that is what he did. And that's the way God, of course, demonstrated his love. Now, if you'll notice that the two definitions we're given here of God, it says God is love in 
1 John 4, 8, and then 1 John 4, 16. God is love. All right? That's a very wonderful thing. But do you notice that you can't say God is mercy? And you can't say God is grace. And you can't even say God is justice. You can say God is holy because that's what God is light means. But you can't say these, but you can say God is love. But again, I must say this, God does not save us by love. He loved us. And we don't want to lose sight of that. But friends, God just cannot open the back door of heaven and slip us in under cover of darkness because he loves us. And God cannot let down the bars of heaven and bring us in the front door. God cannot do that. And God will not do that. We have seen so much of shenanigans that have gone on in this nation of ours today. And, of course, the judges and the ones that are higher up today have gotten rid or wanted to get rid of capital punishment. Why? Because they know that if a man has money or an influence today, that he will not have his life taken. It is the poor fellow. The tragic thing is that we believe today that you can buy justice and influence today. My friend, with God, and though God loves you, he does not save you by love, and he cannot save you by love. God had to do something about the fact that God is holy and righteous, and what he does is right. So God gave his Son to die on the cross for you and me, to pay the penalty for our sins so that a holy God can now reach down and save us. And it's only on that basis today that a holy God can save us, friends. He cannot save us on any other basis at all. So Christ is the mercy seat. Now, that's where God reveals his love. He gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Therefore, he can say that herein is love, not that we love God. We didn't love him first. God didn't do this for us because we were attractive or because we were good or because we promised to do something. God did this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That is the thing that is so important today to recognize that you and I are sinners, and God loved us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. God did it at that time, and God loved us at that time. But he's made a way for us if we will accept it, and he's made it very clear you'll have to accept it. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You either come his way or you don't come, friend. It's nonsense today to talk about the fact that God is love and everything's going to work out all right. You bet it's going to work all right, because the lost are going to a lost eternity, and the saved are going to a saved eternity. That's the reason things are going to work out all right. And are they going to work out all right for you? They will if you come God's way. This is tremendously important. Now he says here, In verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 
Now, God's demonstrated his love. And therefore, you and I ought to love on that plane. He puts in, Beloved, if God so loved us, it carries our minds back here in his love that God gave his Son for us. He loved us enough to give his Son as a propitiation for our sins. Now, if we love them which love us, or there's some motive for us loving, there's no value in that. The Lord Jesus said, If ye love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? Now, we ought to love one another. And I like that in there because when he says ought, he means it. He means that this is not a cheap sentiment that a great many people entertain today. But he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, if you really love him... He says, keep his commandments. And this is my commandment. He says that you love one another. How about it, friend? You mean to tell me that you can hate Christians down here and still love God? And I want to say this to you very frankly today. If you cannot demonstrate in your life that you have love for other believers, there is a serious question of whether you are a child of God or not. A serious question of whether you actually are a child of God. There's a lot of nonsense going on today. And it's not backslapping that we're talking about, or calling somebody brother and in the church being so nice. But do you have a concern for believers? Do you have a concern today to get out his word? Do you have a concern to serve him? That's the thing that is important. The Lord Jesus could even say on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. And the first martyr of the church said the same thing. Stephen said, can you forgive like that today? Are you able to forgive those that have hurt you and harmed you and they profess to be children of God? Well, I want to tell you, if they can't return your love, there's some question about whether they're a child of God or not. That is the real test. That's the acid test. And this hurts, doesn't it? Because we don't hear this in these little seminars, these little group meetings where we talk about how to live the Christian life and how to get along with your wife. My friend, here's the bedrock of all of it. Do you love him? And then do you love other believers? Now he opens this by saying, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us, or perfected, however you want to pronounce it. Now, no man has seen God at any time. Well, that's a statement that will be challenged, because I've had several letters of people when I made the statement before that no one had seen God. They began to give me scriptural illustrations of those that have seen God. They begin, of course, with Adam, and they tell me about him and that Moses talked with God face to face and that God put him in the cleft of the rock and went by. And then in Isaiah, the sixth chapter, Isaiah tells about going into the temple, and he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple. And yet we find Ezekiel had visions of God, and the Lord appeared to Daniel, and there are others that we could give. And yet 
we can say, as John said in his gospel, John 1, 18, "...no man hath seen God at any time." But that doesn't conclude that statement. "...but the only begotten of the Father, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him." That is, he's exegeted him. Now, that just simply means this, that when God appeared to man in the Old Testament, they did not see God, for God is a spirit, and that's the way that you worship him. They saw what is known as a theophany. That is, that God manifested himself in some form to these men, but he did not manifest himself in all of his fullness, so that it can be said And John is saying it now in his epistle, even after the Lord Jesus Christ has gone back to heaven, he can say, no man has seen God at any time. The Lord Jesus Christ said to Philip, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. But how did you see him? Veiled in human flesh. So much so that multitudes that saw him didn't know him. And he was raised yonder in Nazareth, veiled in human flesh, They did not know that he was the Son of God. No man has seen God in all of his fullness. And that still holds good today. Now, the only way they can know about God, and the point that John is making here is just simply this, that no man has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God dwells in us. In other words, God today can manifest himself through believers in loving one another. And the world sees that. You see, the world does not know anything about the love of God. Sinners really don't know about God's love. And God even has to show it to us on the cross when Christ died. And he did that by the Holy Spirit. That love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given unto us. And God commandeth his love to us that while we were sinners, while we were dead in trespasses, while we were ungodly, Christ died for us, you see. Now, that's the only way we can know about it. And it's still true, there's none that seeketh after God. So God has come down seeking man. And he came down 1,900 years ago manifesting himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, all I know about God is what I know in the person of Christ. I don't know how God feels about certain things. I don't know what he thinks about certain things. But I can follow the Lord Jesus, and I can listen to him, and I know what God is thinking, and I can feel the heartbeat of God. I know how he feels at a funeral. Jesus wept. And he broke up every funeral he ever attended. And I know how he feels about little children. And I know that because of the fact he came and manifested God. Now, this wicked world that you and I live in, unfortunately, too many of us are trying to please the world today instead of trying to preach to the world. We're concerned about what the world thinks of us. The important thing is, What do they think of Jesus? What do they think of us as we represent him today? Someone has put it like this. At the age of 20, we do not care what the world thinks of us. At 30, we worry about what the world is thinking of us. And at 40, we discover that it wasn't thinking of us at all. And that's about true. But 
Anyway, we are today to witness to the world. And how are you going to witness? Give out the Word? Yes, that's all important. But when they see that there's no love among believers, and the world's hungry for love, they don't know what it is. Their definition of it would be a three-letter world spelled S-E-X. That's the love that the world knows about today. But they don't know anything about the love of God. They do not know that. And they do not know how wonderful he is. And you and I don't know. No man has seen God at any time. But he can be manifested in us, you see. That's the important thing. It was Plato who said, and I'm of the opinion Plato came in contact with Judaism. He says, the radiant light is the shadow of God. And that is a good definition. And it was David that said, thou clothest thyself with light as with a garment. And a garment something you cover yourself with. God covers himself with light. The very thing that reveals conceals him because the light is so bright. And he is the only begotten son that is in the bosom of the Father. He's led him out where we can see him. And he's the one that is God. And that's the only way you and I are going to know God today. This is very important, in fact, all important for us to know. And the thing is that the world's not seeing enough of this, and yet the world has seen it in the lives of a great many believers. Let me read on here. I'm reading verse 13. By this know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit's within us. And friends, this is not a human love. You and I can't work it up. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc., etc. But love heads the list. And a great many believe that actually love is the fruit and these others stem from love. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians 13, read that, you'll come to the same conclusion. That joy comes out of love. And that peace comes out of love when Chiang Kai-shek was ruling in China proper. You remember, he was not a Christian then. He was very much of a pagan. Whether he was a real believer or not, I don't know. But missionaries that do know it tell me that he was actually a real born-again Christian. But when he was a pagan, he had a Christian wife, you remember. He made this statement. He says, I just can't understand these Christians why they've been treated most abominably here, and they've been robbed, they've been beaten, and many of them killed, and they've been persecuted in a most fearful manner, and yet I never find one of them retaliating. And any time they can do anything for China or for our people, they're ready to do it. I do not understand them. And his wife said to him, "'What you're seeing is the very essence of Christianity. They do that because they're Christian. And we need a great many more pagans to be able to see that in the lives of believers today. This is something that, again, I must repeat it, is sure neglected today. How often do you hear this spoken on, either in radio or the church or wherever you are? Do you hear today 
even in these little seminars we talk about and these great classes that they have. Is this the thing that's given that is basic, that is all important? May I say to you, you don't have to worry about the place of the wife in the home and whether she is to obey the husband and he the head of the house and all of that argument I hear today. If he loves her, and husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. She's a woman that you love. You'd lay down your life for her. And the wife can say, I love him with all of my heart. I'd do anything for him. I don't think you need a lot of little rules to go by. I really don't think you need them. I know there's a monument. I used to see it. It's out in either Kansas or Colorado, coming along on the Santa Fe Super Chief. And I used to always watch for that monument. I even forget now the little town that it's in. But it's a monument of a pioneer woman. And that pioneer woman is in another town that I've been through, and I can't even think where that is. I do know this, that when I went through it, I didn't have my camera. And when I go through again, I'm going to take a picture of it. It's the same monument. This pioneer woman, she's got on a sunbonnet, and she's a young woman, fine-looking young woman, and she's got about five children around holding on to those long skirts that they wore back in those days. And out ahead of her, she's got a gun, too. Out ahead of her is her husband, because she's loading one gun while he shoots the other gun. And he's out there protecting her. And, you know, friends, I don't think that woman needed any lectures on sex. She's got five children. I think she could give you some lectures on it. I don't think that she needed to have a lecture on how to keep your husband. She had no trouble keeping him. May I say to you, you know why? Because they loved each other and they're bound together. And how wonderful that is. The child of God today, if he could only manifest the love of God to others round about us. And he says, and his love is perfected in us. In other words, it's developed in us. It is a growth in us and should be a growth in us. Verse 13, By this know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And that, my friend, is the real test. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. And back in verse 4, I went over that rather carefully, if you'll remember. The greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Now, the Spirit of God can produce this love in your heart. You can't produce it. I can't produce it. I can't love like that. My natural hint is that when somebody hits me, I hit back. But the Spirit of God who indwells us, if we are filled by His Spirit, we're going to manifest that kind of love to the world out yonder. Now, let me read on here. Verse 14, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And this is the gospel witness, therefore. This is the message that we have to give. This is the purpose of our love. It's not something that's sloppy. And again, I have to come back and say it again. Christian love is not sentimental. It's not sexual. It's not social. It's not something that you have at the church banquet. It is something, my friend, that reveals it when we take 
Christ to a lost world, to sinners. That is the way we manifest our love today. It is hard to understand. I've been down with missionaries in many places. I've been with them in Israel. I've been with them in Africa. I've been with them in Lebanon. I've been with them in Turkey, although they're not allowed to be missionaries there. I've been with them in Europe, in France, and in Italy. And I want to say that I've been with them down in Mexico. I've been with them in Venezuela. I've been with them down in the Caribbean. And the thing that I note about these missionaries is this. They love people, and a lot of the people they love are very hard to love, friends. But they have a love for them. And how wonderful it is. What are they doing? They're taking the gospel out to these people. And that is the thing God's commanded them to do. And I think when they got there, they maybe didn't love them at first. But I tell you, after you've ministered to people, you'll love them. Or you just couldn't be God's child, you see. Now we move on here. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. That's where you begin with him. Don't tell me that virgin birth is not important. During the Easter week, we emphasize the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And all of this was according to the Scriptures. And friends, if he's not who he said he was, then his death and resurrection is absolutely meaningless. In fact, he was not raised from the dead. But the evidence is all on the side that he did. And the proof of it is that he was virgin-born. He's who he claimed to be, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And that's the reason he could say, whatever God does, I do. And he made that tremendous claim, that he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, shall not come into judgment, but pass from death to life. How could that be? How is that possible, my friend? Because he has made the statement before that what God does, he does, that he's going to raise the dead and he's going to judge all of the dead. That's the reason he can say to you today, because of who he is, that if you hear his voice, if you'll believe on him, that you'll be saved. Now he says in verse 15, "...whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God..." God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Now, these are inexorably intertwined and interwoven together. You just couldn't say that you love God and that you're a child of God and hate the brethren down here. This is now the second time we've had the definition, God is love. And the nice way to remember this is that it's in 1 John, the fourth chapter. First, multiply four by two, and you get eight. And that's where it occurs the first time. Then multiply eight by two, and you get 16. And that's where we are right here, verse 16. 1 John 4 and 8 and 16 give the definition, God is love. Now, verse 17 Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. Now, our love is made perfect. And that, of course, means complete. 
That is, if you and I love God and love the Lord Jesus, and we love one another as brethren and sisters in the faith, then that's going to give us boldness. We won't have any fear of the day of judgment at all, because as he is, we're in the world. In other words, we're just like the Lord Jesus. He was raised from the dead, we are told here. And he has life. Well, we have that life too. And he's up yonder for us. We're in Christ. And we're accepted in the Beloved. And therefore, he can go on and say here, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath punishment. There's nothing like fear in the human heart, but the child of God doesn't need to fear any judgment that's coming. It's all settled when Christ died for us. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. In other words, you can't enjoy your salvation. You see, joy does stem from love. And if you have love for the Lord Jesus, for God, and you have love for your brethren, then fear's been cast out. Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. He loved us when we were unlovely. He's worth loving. He's worthy. The Lamb is worthy of all of our love, all of our devotion, all of our service. If a man says, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. I didn't say that, friends. John said that here. He says that if you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? What nonsense and what pious hypocrisy there is today, even in fundamental circles. Verse 21, And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. This is a commandment. He didn't ask you whether you felt like it or whether you wanted to. He says, This is what I command you, because I love. You're to love. And that is the thing we saw in the book of Jonah. I'm a little weary, friends, of hearing about dedicated and consecrated Christians today who are lazy on the job. I happen to have quite a crew here at the Through the Bible Radio, and I watch them. And we have some wonderful, devoted workers. But every now and then, we get one. And he's generally, or she's generally, the ones that talk the loudest about how dedicated they are to the Lord. You're not dedicated to the Lord. Unless you demonstrate it in your service today, friends, that's the only way. 